Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are talking about how the international community is likely to react to the suspected chemical weapons attack in Douma in Syria. Many countries are living with the ghosts of 2013, which was the last time, the first time, in fact, that Syria was accused of of using chemical weapons and crossed a red line that was laid out by Barack Obama. And it is the failure or the way that different countries have responded to that which is determining their national debates. To help me make sense of what's happening in Syria itself and the likely responses in Washington, in Paris, in London, in Ankara, and in other places, I have an all-star ECFR cast. Julian Barnes-Dacey is a senior policy fellow of our Middle East and North Africa program, who's our lead analyst on, on Syria. From Istanbul, we have Asla Aydin Tashbash, also a senior policy fellow at ECFR. From Paris, we have Manuel Lafont-Hapnoui, who has just written a fantastic policy brief on France's Middle Eastern policy. And looking at uh, both the responses in, in Russia and in Paris, where she's sitting at the moment, we have Kadri Leek, another senior policy fellow at ECFR. Julian, you uh, have been following this crisis from the very beginning. You've lived in Syria. You've looked at all the twists and turns in it. How important are the last few days to the ongoing struggle for regional supremacy, which has now uh, entered its sixth year in Syria? Well, it's, it, it's hard to say that, 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 that this is a game changer or that we're suddenly on the path towards a, a, a new direction in the conflict. I mean, Assad has essentially won the civil war. Um, he has apparently, and I think this is, this is very likely, used um, chlorine gas once again, and, and he's been using that repeatedly over the last few months and years. This is not a new occasion. It's simply that it's come to light because of a higher death toll and, and, and visual evidence. But he's been using that in his ongoing pursuit of, of, of total victory. And even as you see some sense of an impending reaction from the likes of, of Presidents Trump and Macron and perhaps the British as well, it's hard to imagine that this is really going to be something that fundamentally changes the, the course of the conflict. There's clearly a desire to impose some kind of cost on Assad at the moment in response to this very visual and, and open use of, of, of chemical weapons once again. But there doesn't seem to be any appetite to do anything more than try and impose some kind of deterrence on this particular use of of a brutal weapon, as opposed to doing something that is going to change the broader trajectory of the conflict. There's no sense of a kind of broader strategy here that the Americans and the French are embarking on uh, to, to get Assad to back down more meaningfully. And why did Assad feel compelled to, to use chemical weapons? I mean, this conflict is going very much in his direction. The Russians and the Iranians are uh, solidly by his side. The territory controlled by non-Assad forces is shrinking week in, week out. Well, Assad has never stopped using chlorine gas and that appears to be what was used in this latest incident if you recall in the incident and in, in, uh, after the the eastern Ghouta attack in 2013 when the americans and the russians negotiated the the the, the surrender of syrian stockpiles of chemical weapons that agreement didn't include chlorine gas uh that's a lower level kind of chemical weapons and assad has used that on a on a on an almost daily basis throughout the conflict uh as little as as a few months ago uh 
Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said that that didn't even constitute a red line for the Americans. Uh, so this has been a tool of war. They've been pushing on with it. They clearly have manpower and resource issues. And this was an, infect, an effective way of imposing a, 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 a fear factor on the Syrian population that, 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 that helped them surrender more rapidly. What is different on this occasion is, is that it's been so publicly uh, uh, seen to be used that the visual evidence has been once again so brutal. And because of the, the apparent dynamics of where this attack took, took place in, 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 a, um, in a closed in space in which the, the casualty count was higher, it has been brought to world attention in a way that, that Presidents Trump and Macron have, have found hard to, to ignore. But let's be clear, this is not a new occurrence. Um, and it's something that for a long time the, 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 the international community, or at least the West, have been happy to, to, to let keep going. So, Aslam, you're sitting in uh, Turkey, which is the country which in 2013 was the, the most kind of uh, vocal about the, the human rights abuses, the need to do something to establish humanitarian responses. Um, there have been a few twists and turns in Turkish policy since then. So how has it been seen uh, in Ankara? Well, Mark, Turkey has been the most gung-ho member of the international coalition uh, against uh, the regime in Assad. And uh, to be very honest with you, one of the major rifts in Turkey's relations with the U.S. was essentially Turkish government's deep resentment about Obama not uh, penalizing the Assad regime in 2013 after the use of chemical weapons. This was something they kept talking about it for the past four years. But now we have an entirely different situation, almost a new Turkey, in the sense that Turkey has fragile relations with the U.S. They can see that there is a Trump administration, which says one thing one day, another thing uh, the next day. Uh, the example being President Trump just talking about leaving Syria last week, uh, saying he doesn't want to have troops there and uh, talking about pulling out. So they are cautious, but more than that, uh, over the past four years, a major shift has taken place in Turkish foreign policy, the rapprochement with Russia. It's more than a rapprochement, I would say. They are pretty close to Kremlin at this point in terms of, and they, they are part of the Astana process, with, along with Iran and Russia, uh, in terms of stabilizing parts of northern Syria. But not just that. I mean, I think in many ways, maybe uh, Turkey is dependent on Russia in being able to operate in northern Syria. And uh, don't forget that both two major in Turkish incursions in Syria, uh, but that is the Euphrates Shield and now the Operation Olive Branch in Afrin, have taken place after a green light from Moscow. So Turkish troops are vulnerable. They don't really want to pick a fight with uh, uh, Moscow. They do not. So hence the Turkish government is in a very big, is in a dilemma. They would like to come out and say Assad should go, and uh, they would like to take part in sort of uh, punitive measures, but they're not able to because of the, the, the sort of relationship they've established with Moscow. Initially, when news of a chemical strike uh, started coming out, Erdogan's statements, that's two days ago, were pretty harsh, and Turks... Uh, 
the Turkish government does think the Assad regime is behind it. But then he got a call from uh, Vladimir Putin. And I'm looking at statements from yesterday by Turkish officials, including Erdogan. Well, it's a lot more vague and whoever has done this should pay a price, but not really pointing, blaming, blaming uh, the Assad regime or talking about taking part in it. So basically because of the dependence on Russia, and because of the sort of state of relations with U.S., I think Turkey has no option but to sit on the fence. Now, very quickly, there's another way this impacts Turkey, which is Eastern Ghouta. The people that are being evacuated from there are essentially being sent to the Turkish border area. This is the responsibility Turkey is given as part of the Astana process. So it impacts Turkey in more ways than one, and it's a very, to be honest with you, uh, it's it must be very painful to Turkish leaders to have to keep quiet about all this. So how many people are, sh- uh, is it large numbers of people who are, who are being evacuated? Uh, there, o- almost a million people have come out of Idlib, again, as part of the Astana process, and now over the past few weeks, we are hearing about people being bussed from Eastern Ghouta, the reason the chemical attack took place was uh, the negotiations between uh, Jaish al-Islam, the army of Islam, and uh, the Syrian regime, negotiations that were done through the Russians, fell apart, it, it collapsed. And those people have since been bussed, some of those populations have since been bussed to the Turkish-controlled areas on our border. Okay, so um, Manuel, you were sitting in Paris, um, which is... Uh, one of the countries maybe most haunted by the ghosts of 2013. Uh, François Hollande, who was then president, really stuck his neck out and then felt he was left hanging by uh, President Obama. Um, Hasn't necessarily um, meant that France has been holding back this time around. Um, The the drums of war have been beating in Paris, have they not? Yes. It's striking that uh, during the campaign uh, before the election, Macron was quite critical of uh, Hollande's position for being too tough, uh, in particular on Assad uh, and his departure as a precondition, and also on Russia and uh, the lack of engagement and dialogue with Russia. And yet, on that particular issue, Macron has always taken a very strong stance, uh, a very tough one, and he has actually used the red line. The, the, the one thing that everybody thought uh, Obama proved was a bad idea uh, to do, and precisely uh, Hollande was burnt with this idea of red line. Well, Macron said chemical attacks would be a red line and would prompt, um, would prompt French military action. And Hollande was left hanging because at the end he decided that he couldn't go alone. Uh, and the UK, and even more importantly, obviously, the US had decided not to go. But Macron has said already, uh, and not just with the recent discussion, but from the start, that he was determined to including uh, tech unilateral. So it's not just America alone. France first. <laughs> well, I, I, obviously, they would rather go there uh, collectively with the UK and even more uh, importantly with the US, uh, for sure. Uh, and since Trump seems determined, actually when, when there was the latest uh, strike by the US in April 2017, Macron was not president yet, but he had very strongly approved of Trump's decision to send the, the 59 Tomahawks missiles 
on, on that Syrian uh, base. And the only criticism that he made at the time was not about the legal basis or the UN cover, as one traditional French politician would have. He just said, I regret that it wasn't concerted, that it wasn't collected. This is consistent not only with the French strong position on Syria, but also with French concerns on uh, weapons of mass destruction proliferation. That's, that's, that is a strong driver of the French toughness on that issue. So France seems determined to go and pleased that you won't have to go uh, alone. Uh, and, and there is a bit of a discussion uh, in France, but basically everyone is waiting for military action to take place. And the, and the so what question, the what is going to happen after that, is not there yet. I'm, I'm sure it will come to Macron very quickly, and that will be a difficult question for him to answer. But it's not there yet. Basically, people are waiting for, for the strike to, to take place now. So there are two big so what questions. One is, you know, how does it impinge on the wider strategic configurations in, in Syria? And then uh, and I'd like to come back to Julian to, to look into that. But before we look at that, the other big so what question is, so what if American, French and British uh, troops and strikes uh, end up killing Russians? Are we going to have World War Three on our hands? Kadri, how's this all being viewed from Moscow? I was in Moscow uh, just on Tuesday and there was a palpable worry as well as some sad resignation uh, in, in the town. And worry, of course, had to do with potential developments in uh, Syria. Uh, people feared that what if uh, US strikes, yes, end up hitting uh, Russian soldiers or assets, then Moscow might feel obliged to retaliate uh, and that could lead to uncontrollable escalation. And it is important to understand that for Moscow, risk standoff in Syria comes um, on top of a, what is perceived as, as wider confrontation. For Moscow, things are not the same as they were last year. Last year, also, we asked well, how will Moscow react, but actually Moscow was very restrained. Uh, but Tricia, things are different. They don't have any hopes about Trump administration anymore. Last year, there was still thinking that uh, relations between Putin and Trump can be good, and that will help Moscow on a wider range of foreign policy issues. Now, uh, this is clearly not happening. Russia question is so polarized in the US domestically that Trump, even if he wanted to do something, is, is deadlocked and, and Trump's own intentions are also unclear and, and permanently changing, it seems. So, um, and the last round of US sanctions, actually even the general sanctions list that was uh, announced a while ago and now the concrete sanctioned people and companies, that has created an impression in Moscow that this is a wider confrontation with the US. They really have started talking about new Cold War. And for them, this is not just a phrase, but, but there is a meaning uh, to it. And then the Skripal thing came. Um, that is also very strange. In Moscow, um, no one makes sense of it. They are as confused as... Uh, I am. Why, why was it needed to assassinate Skripal, who was behind it? Um, and a number of experts have made themselves believe that this was a false flag operation. 
provocation uh, organized by someone else with intention to blame it on Russia. Uh, others still accept the possibility that these were some sort of rogue actors or so-called dark state in, in Russia, uh, acting without explicit sanction of the Kremlin. And actually that question, in a way, um, matters, uh, because if Moscow believes that that was Western ex- uh, provocation uh, and and the expulsions of diplomats then basically looks like adding uh, insult to injury, um, then that is going to affect Moscow's reaction, Moscow's further retaliation uh, to expulsion of diplomats, and it will all be translated somehow into Syria as well. And the common denominator in these two cases are chemical weapons. And if you paid attention, Russian MFA has been saying that uh, attack in Salisbury was done deliberately to discredit uh, Russia in in Syria. So very smuggled uh, thinking and, and very strange. Usually when things happen, you... You get a sense in Moscow what has happened, what's the, what the thinking is. But this time it is clear that big parts of the establishment do not understand. Now, I think President Putin probably has an idea what happened and what his strategic line is. But he's not really sharing it with any institutions. And, and they operate in, in, in the dark. So I learned this new word a few years ago when Russian action in Syria started stepping out, which was this idea of deconfliction. I've not come across that before, but it's the idea of, of trying to make sure that um, the superpowers don't unwittingly find themselves in an escalating cycle of violence with each other um, and therefore um, try and minimise the chances of, 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 uh, of, of attacking each other. How much of that is possible, given the atmosphere of, of distrust and uh, suspicion that you've just described? Is it um, just that there is a lot of distrust in Washington, in Moscow, but on the ground um, there are people are sharing plans with each other and trying to, to make sure that... Um, there isn't a kind of um, uh, too much uh, kinetic action between the the superpowers? Well, um, my thinking is that between Washington and Moscow, it should still be possible. Uh, It depends actually a lot on Washington if if they are going to give advance warning to Moscow um, and then... I believe that actually fear of uncontrolled escalation actually acts as a strong deterrent in Moscow. Uh, they, are, they are serious about avoiding war with America. That is something they, they do not want to have. Uh, but of course, the question also is to what extent Moscow feels obliged to shield Assad. I've been reading reports of Syrian troops hiding their assets in bases populated by Russians. Uh, assuming that Reese will not be hit. So, you know, if if, if Russia starts providing uh, cover to to Syrians in in very obvious and cynical way, then how does that affect Western calculations? I don't know. Okay. Well, maybe we should go back into the Syrian morass then. Um, and, I mean, Julian, you were very sceptical that this is going to have much of an impact on, on the kind of longer-term 
situation in Syria. That was the big critique in 2013 about the actions that you could it, you could play whack-a-mole and, and, and hit a few targets, but that it wasn't part of a kind of wider plan. Um, what do we actually think is going to happen now? Is it just virtue signaling from the West to say, you know, we are angry, a red line has been crossed, we're tougher than Obama? Or um, are there people who actually have something more akin to a strategy here? I, I think there are competing strategies that are being tried to play out, and, and that's part of the problem. I mean, to pick up quickly on, on the Russia point, um, th- there's a lot of bellicose rhetoric out there, and there is clearly a risk that things could go pop with the uncertainty of war. I would note that, that, that some Russian newspapers, I think there's one called Commerçant, I don't know how reliable it is, said last night that the, the Russian MOD is actually talking to the American Defence Department to avoid, to actually enforce this deconfliction mechanism and ensure that actually uh, when the kinetic action starts, the two countries don't uh, clash. And so I think that, that there is more going on behind the scenes, given the awareness of the risks at, at hand. To, to, to go back to, to your question then, Mark, I mean, it's not just 2013. I mean, remember that, that Trump launched a series of strikes exactly one year ago in response to this kind of action. Um, that clearly failed to produce a desired result. Assad has used chemical weapons on frequent o- occasion then. I think there is a recognition today that, that, that you, you need a broader strategy, therefore, if, 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 if something is going to work, if this is going to be meaningful. I think that in part, both in terms of the deconfliction with, with the Russians, but also the idea that there needs to be a broader strategy, um, is one reason why you've actually seen some form of delay in these strikes being initiated. I mean, it's now been five days or so, and, and we haven't seen any action. But it's incredibly hard to, to, to think what that will look like in the context of an American and a French president who do not want to be dragged into something more sustained. They don't want to be intervening on a regular basis. Um, they don't want to actually become active parties in this conflict. And so I think there's a, there is a sense that the strikes are going to be wider now. They're going to be more intense. But Assad is hunkering down. He's messaging that this is just going to be a snap of the wrist. We can live through this. Don't think this is going to be a more strategic assault against us. And, and I think there is a very large chance that in a few days you'll see some strikes. There'll be some large, loud noise. And then on the immediate aftermath of that, it won't take long to, to, to go back to the status quo ante. Maybe there will be some success in that Assad will feel uh, more cautious about using these kind of attacks as he moves on other parts of the country. But the past evidence suggests that that's unlikely to be the case. Set to the backdrop of this, I would just make one last point, is that there are other interests at play here. You have the likes of... of I mean, there's another war going on and becoming more acute. The civil war is essentially over in Syria, but it's now becoming more of a regional war focused on Iran. And you have countries like the Israelis and the Saudis who very acutely want to draw the Americans into this conflict, and even elements within the U.S. administration itself who want to draw the Americans into this conflict. And I think do see this as part of that strategy. You'll recall that Trump just said a few weeks ago he wants the Americans out. Well, here's the opportunity to get the Americans more firmly back into the conflict, not so much with with the lens focused on, on Assad, but using this chemical weapons incidents to tie them down into a longer war with, with Iran. And I think that is another danger hanging over this conflict. Two days ago, the Israelis went in and bombed Iranian assets there. How much does what is unfolding now serve as, a, as an avenue into this wider regional conflict that we see escalating? So there are lots of competing dynamics. I think 
Kadri's points about the uncertainty of war and unintended escalation certainly ring very true. Um, and I think from a European perception are, are on the mind of many. I'd be interested to, to hear what Manuel thinks on that in terms of the French perspective. How much are they worried that the, the, the desire to do something on the chemical weapons attack either ties them down into a broader intervention or is a door opening, door opener towards these, these, these wider interests that want to drag them into a war with Iran? Of course, uh, this is a concern that the French have. Um, let me put it that way. I, th- I, I don't know if in 2013 uh, strikes would have actually shifted the, the momentum of the world. The situation was very different. Russia was not involved. Turkey was in a different place, etc., etc. But whatever was the case in 2013, it's clear that limited strikes are even less likely now to produce this kind of dramatical uh, shift, and in particular to stop violence committed against civilians, even without uh, the use of chemical weapons. Uh, But I I don't see that uh, a longer and sustained military effort is likely, uh, even more so for the French if the US isn't considering such an effort. I said the French are considering, Macron is considering a unilateral strike, but if that was the case, it would be very limited, very narrow, obviously. It can't be a sustained national effort, uh, especially without uh, the US. So the the question about what next uh, is very important for the French. They don't want to have a repeat of the April 2017, where basically the US screwed whatever leverage they got from their strike. I don't know if they had any, but they clearly didn't even try properly to to create any leverage and use it. Um, let's go step by step. For the French, surely the first results, the first outcome that they would want is a stop of the use of chemical attacks. Uh, and as Julien said, this is already difficult. But that wouldn't make any sense if mass atrocities just go on uh, and, and you are you f- it feels like you just reacted because of the way people were killed, but the fact that people are killed and that international humanitarian law is violated in other manners actually doesn't count. And that's why Macron uh, in May 2017, in this meeting with Putin uh, in Versailles and several times since then, has said that he has two red lines. The first one is on chemical attack. The other one is on humanitarian access. Um, and so you will see, I am sure, the French after the strikes, trying to come back to a, okay, we've done that, but now let's talk and see how we can get out of this kind of situation. And one of the issues on which they will look for progress is humanitarian access, maybe even uh, improved policy of protecting civilians from casualties in the conflict. And then obviously the third level uh, for the French is the kind of broader level. It's, It's how you move to a more genuine, more authentic, more sincere political process. You have Astana, you have Sochi, all these things. You have even Geneva, which the French support very much because it's UN-led, but they don't see that as having any traction. And so in in the French dreams, the real uh, outcome of that is that we get some traction moving in that direction. That's very ideal and it won't happen very um, simply, very easily. Uh, all the more because of Julien was just saying, I don't know about how much the French are uh, concerned about deconfliction, but clearly they have concern about the kind of regionalization of, uh, 
of the uh, of of the war of the fight uh, with Israel, with Turkey, with Iran, obviously, etc. And Macron has said explicitly on several instances that he fears that we end up recreating the kind of axis of evil, bipolarized regional setting, and he's not looking for that. He he wants to be tough on Iran on a number of issues, but he doesn't want to escalate toward a broader regional conflict with Iran for sure, and that is. <laughs> certainly uh, uh, something that they have in mind, not just when they look at the region or whether they think about Turkey or Iran or uh, Russia and how they're going to, re to react to the strikes, but also when they talk to uh, the US, their US interlocutors. Obviously, on, on the role of Europe in French thinking, there, there is no role for other European in the military strikes as such uh, out of the UK and France. But it would be important, I feel, that after that, uh, there is some kind of broader European mobilization, if only to avoid uh, the cacophony, because every European leader is going to be asked the questions, were the strikes justified, were they even legal by international law, etc. And it would be very bad, obviously, for those who did uh, the strikes that you have people saying, hmm, I'm not sure, I wonder, etc. So you need to rally them around. And the best way to rally them around on what you did without really consulting with them in the first place is to say, okay, look, now we are going to try precisely to find a way to leverage what we did and, and do that collectively. Uh, and if you don't do that, well, it will be more difficult for the French to convince uh, the US by themselves and it will be more difficult for the French to act alone, which is exactly what Hollande was doing uh, under his term and failed him uh, in isolating him from the kind of broader uh, international political great uh, power game in Syria. Okay, well, it sounds like um, we're going to have to do another podcast both on that bigger regional question because Julian, along with some of his other colleagues on the Middle East and North Africa team, are doing an amazing study on that. But also, um, we should check in on the European responses a bit further down the, the line. There's a big debate in London about whether they join in the attack now um, and uh, the responses in other capitals will also be very interesting. But we've more or less run out of time today. We have one more thing that we have to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Um, but because we are quite close to the hour, it'd be great if you could be um, very brief in, in terms of what you're reading at the moment. Asla, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, I'm reading Ambassador Morgenthau's story. Uh, he was the Ottoman ambassador from 1913 to 1916, I believe. Each year in April, April 24th is the commemoration of the Armenian genocide. And I try to pick up something among history books and sort of read about the issue. This is a very important account because as the U.S. ambassador in uh, in Turkey at the time, in, in the, under the Ottoman Empire at the time, he had he was able to interface, have dealings with the Ottoman leaders who carried out the the campaign of sort of ethnic cleansing and uh, have actually daily encounters with the French, the, the the Germans and whatnot. In some sense, it's far more. It's a very valuable uh, piece of diplomatic work, but also a moving account. And what's on your bookshelf, Kadri? I have been reading um, Dostoevsky. Over the Easter break, I read through uh, Brothers Karamazov, and that was very good. Uh, it makes an amazingly good Easter reading, uh, Dostoevsky being a religious person uh, himself. 
uh, and it also gives you amazing insights into Russian ways of thinking. Um, I'm not going to invent foreign policy parallels here, although one certainly could. There are several. Um, I just suggest that every now and then try to take some time off from work and go and read a good novel. Okay, what about you, Manuel? I'm reading La Mondialisation des Pauvres uh, by Armel Choplin and Olivier Pliez. This is about globalization seen from the, the Paul's uh, side, both as consumers and as actors, as basically the engine that's uh, produce further globalization. And it, I'm, I've not, I'm not done with it yet, but it's fascinating so far. And Julian, what are you reading? I'm about to begin a, a, a new biography of Joseph Conrad, The Dawn Watch, Joseph Conrad in a Global World. It's supposed to be a, a, a fascinating biography of him with, with, with resonance and the world we live in today and the, the kind of globalized modern problems that, that the world faces. But, but I'll let you know once I've read it. What learned colleagues I have. I, I'm uh, uh, reading a lot of short-term stuff at the moment and I just want to end by plugging um, uh, Manuel's new uh, publication, Alone in the Desert, How France Can Lead Europe in the Middle East, which I think is a, a particularly uh, interesting piece of work to read this week as we debate whether there are going to be attacks by France, France and America, France, America and the UK and others in Syria following these chemical attacks. It's been great uh, talking to all of you. I hope that people have enjoyed the podcast. If you have, please head straight to social media and tweet about it, write about it on your Facebook page or ours. But above all, go to the uh, ratings and reviews page on iCloud, uh, iTunes or SoundCloud or whatever platform you're using to listen to us on and give us a review. It's a very uh, good way of making sure that other people can hear the podcast and uh, it would be much appreciated by all of us. But for now, from Julian Barnes-Dacey, Asla Aydin Tashbash, Kadri Leek, Manuel Lefouin Nui, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Harkenbreich, and our editor is Katarina Botel-Atzinaro. Mm-hmm.